0: Faded Out was released a little more than 14 months ago, on February 4th of 2018. It began because I had spent a year prior to its release reading up on and obsessing over the Johnny Gosh case out of West Des Moines, Iowa. And it was my first attempt at podcasting of any kind. Now, bear in mind, prior to this, I had never envisioned myself as having a podcast or working on a podcast. At the time I started, I was a student enrolled at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. So being a student and having free reign to equipment and studio time, I decided to take this interest in what was at that time a 35-year-old missing child case and try to do something constructive with it. I didn't know if anyone would listen or what would come out of it, but as it turns out, a lot of people had a similar fascination with the Johnny Gosh case, and the podcast caught fire almost immediately. With no sponsors and no advertising other than social media, by my third episode, I already had well over 100 downloads. And not only that, but people started interacting with me, telling me what they think happened, who they thought I should interview, and so on. So I said, okay, this is great. People are engaging. So flash forward a few months in, I do have a few friends who live in the Des Moines area and one of them, Kat, messaged me one day inviting me to come out and visit. And see the area and interview people in person so i said hell yeah i'll come out there in person which without the invitation would have been difficult as i do live in connecticut so this was around may when cat first invited me so we made plans for me to come out there for five days in september Also in May, I first made contact with someone that we refer to on this podcast as Yellow Bag. And if you're wondering where that nickname comes from, it's in reference to the Des Moines Register newspaper bags that young carriers in the 70s and 80s would use, which were literally yellow bags. I first got a hold of Yellow Bag through a website called Iowa Cold Cases on a discussion board under the entry for Johnny Gosh. Yellow Bag was a few years older than Johnny, and he never knew him. But he was also a newspaper carrier for the Des Moines Register around that same time. And it was Yellow Bag who first alerted me to a circulation manager at the time by the name of Wilbur Millhouse. And from that point forward, Wilbur Millhouse would become the prime focus of this particular podcast. This is your Season 1 Update. I'm Sarah Dimio. Listen to my episodes from last September. You know that that trip was incredibly enlightening. I met with Ron Sampson, who I interviewed in episode 20 of last season. Ron was the president of the Help Find Johnny Gosh organization since around 1984, as well as a friend of both of Johnny's parents, John and Noreen. I also met with Mark Hinshaw, who was also a friend of Ron and very up on Johnny's case. Mark is an attorney in West Des Moines, and we actually used his office as our meeting place for the week that I was out there. I also got to meet Yellowbag in person, and we went and visited Wilbur Millhouse's old property in an area of Des Moines called The Bottoms. But I think the most pivotal point of that entire trip was when Mark and I drove over to Sam Soda's house, and we met Sam in person. And we sat in his backyard and talked to him for almost three hours there has been over the years a lot of things said about sam both in newspapers and online awful things that he's been accused of from being a pedophile himself to playing a role in johnny's abduction as well as the abduction of other children at the time which i will admit i believe too and even went so far as to report it as fact in this podcast And most of these newspaper articles from over the years were written by a reporter at the Des Moines Register named Frank Santiago. And a large portion of these allegations against Sam also came from Noreen Gosh's book that she self-published in 2000 called Why Johnny Can't Come Home. But when we met Sam, it was the exact opposite of everything I ever thought of him. We showed up at his door unannounced. He answered the door wearing a button-down shirt and pajama pants. And he was interested in talking with us. He had nothing to hide. Sam Soda was a private investigator. He was somebody who was on the side of good. And the main takeaway from any information that Sam shared with us that day was he firmly believed that Johnny's abduction was committed by somebody local. It was a crime of opportunity. Not some grandiose plot by the government that was targeting and hand-selecting children to sell and trade into international pedophile rings. No, Sam believes that it was someone at the Des Moines Register. He didn't know the name Wilbur Millhouse, But Sam is, however, known for getting another employee of the register, Frank Sikora, to admit to touching and other inappropriate behavior with young paper carriers at the time. And while there was never anything to connect Frank Sikora to Johnny's abduction, it did indicate a pattern with some of the employees within the register. The most incriminating things about Millhouse was that after Johnny disappeared, he said in front of Yellowbag, as well as Yellowbag's mother, nothing would have happened to him if he just kept his mouth shut. And it was later discovered that Milhouse had the names and addresses of over two thousand boys in his possession back at his house. Not to mention Millhouse was a convicted child molester almost a decade before Johnny's disappearance. But the Des Moines Register kept him on as an employee and made him a circulation manager anyway. Hey. hey how you doing? Good, how are you? So in April of 2019. I went back to West Des Moines. On the Monday morning that I was there, I caught up with the Yellow Bag to find out what's been going on since I was last in town.
1: Well, after you left, we, uh, we talked about, about a few different things. Uh, maybe trying to find Wilbur Milhouse's trial transcripts mm-hmm. and read those. Good idea. Um, I, I met uh, Sam Soda and then after that I tracked down John Rossi.
0: Did he tell you anything new? And I know because we, Mark and I, met with him last time I was here. We spoke to him for almost three hours. Um, did he remember anything significant that he mentioned in front of you or when you guys went to lunch? Uh,
1: you're talking Sam? Or? Yeah, Sam. Uh, nothing nothing that I hadn't already heard uh, other than Sam kind of reinforced his idea that that he thinks it was just one person who kidnapped Johnny if if it was a group of people you know someone would have ratted someone else out
0: by now that's true and and that's another thing to I think we should all keep in mind too is that criminals like that and pedophiles uh they can't shut up like they they like to talk so um that's even like with millhouse stuff like oh nothing would have happened if he didn't keep his mouth shut you know Uh, i i put a post on iowa cold
1: cases website Uh and i did have one response from a man who said that he knew Wilbur Millhouse. that he played softball with Wilbur Milhouse uh, he mentioned something about Millhouse taking boys camping which was news to me I had never heard that
0: mm-hmm.
1: before and when I asked him if he was a victim of Milhouse, he he didn't respond after that.
0: Originally as I was planning this most recent trip to Des Moines I had wanted to come the week before but I ended up having a scheduling conflict and was unable to. And the reason why I wanted to come the week before was because that week, John Sr., Johnny's dad, was in town. And when Yellow Bag met John, John mentioned that he believes Johnny's pickup spot for his papers that morning was up at the corner of 42nd and Ashworth, as originally reported. You might remember back in episode 16, I spoke to Chris Burge, who knew Johnny and was two years younger than him. Chris remembered Johnny's pickup spot as being at the corner of 42nd and Marcourt, the corner that Johnny was taken from. In fact, Chris lived at the house on Marcourt Lane where Johnny's wagon was discovered out in front of. Chris even remembers seeing Johnny cross in front of the Burgess driveway on Marcourt that morning, which suggests that he did not cut through the churchyard up to Ashworth as had always been reported. Yellowbag had explained to me in an email the week before I flew out why Johnny's dad believed the newspaper drop was, in fact, up at Ashworth that morning. He had written to me, John Sr. thinks now that Johnny did pick up his newspapers at 42nd and Ashworth, not Marcourt." John Sr. thinks Chris Burge is wrong. Maybe Chris remembers the Monday through Saturday drop because those locations were different than the Sunday drop. So I asked Yellowbag to reiterate this when I met with him. But let's get back to what we were kind of talking about a second ago um, you met john a few months ago when he came here and he was here john i'm talking about johnny's dad john Gosh. Uh, yeah and when he was here a few months back and he was here last week too and so he mentioned to you that he now thinks that johnny's pickup spot was up at the corner of ashworth
1: yes that's what he said to me when when i met john rossi last fall uh, rossi is absolutely sure that he saw johnny gosh uh, the morning johnny was kidnapped talking to a man in a blue car Okay. Uh, rossi thinks that maybe it was a, a mercury zephyr okay um, he remembers that uh just one unusual thing that the license plate was hanging below the bumper instead of above the bumper of the car. But uh, Rossi was sure that it was Johnny Gosh, and when I I talked to John Gosh Senior, uh, he thinks that that yeah maybe the paper drop was at 42nd and Ashworth, and John Gosh said that if there was a paper drop there, there wouldn't have been another drop a block north.
0: Yeah, because uh, you were just saying they were usually spaced about six blocks apart. There wouldn't be one and then one, like, right on the next corner.
1: Yeah, at too. least the drivers, you know, wanted to stop as, you know, infrequently as possible. Right.
0: Um, the thing that concerned me about John Rossi um, was that his daughter Peggy, when I was emailing with her, uh, she said that they weren't from that Particular area, they were like they lived a few miles away, and um, I think a lot of the documentaries and such and reports are a little misleading because it sort of leads you to believe that that house that's on the corner there was John Rossi's house. That's what I assumed for a long time. Um, They don't actually are, they're not explicit when they say that he, he drove there to that corner in his car that day to help his kid load load the papers and all of that stuff and that they were actually leaving town they were they were in a hurry like trying to get out of town like on vacation that day um uh so i think that that detail is left out of a lot of places and people are kind of left to assume that because john rossi was up there that that was his house and i think that's that's definitely what i assumed the first time and i think uh, other people probably assume that too um But the concern that i have with that is that peggy also said to me that um john didn't know johnny at all so and this here's something chris burge even said to me chris burge was like we all looked the same so my concern was that maybe he did he did he or did he not know at the time that he was looking at johnny gosh my my thought
1: was even even if he didn't know johnny well and I think he says that, that he, he didn't, he had seen Johnny before, but okay. but I, I don't think that he knew him well. But when Johnny was kidnapped, uh, Rossi told me that uh, he, he was actually out of town. The police called him and demanded that he come back here to Des Moines. Okay. Uh, they treated him as a suspect because he was the last adult uh, seen with, with Johnny. Which
0: is? somewhat understandable yeah he was the last adult to Sam
1: and uh, you know of course Johnny's picture was plastered all over the the newspaper and the television news and so it's kind of hard for me to imagine that that if it was someone other than Johnny gosh that John wouldn't have realized that immediately okay uh, John had, you know John seemed absolutely sure that it was Johnny gosh okay talking to the man in the blue car
0: okay because if I made a mistake at any point in the first season, uh I I wanna know about it. Like if I sure. make a mistake, I'll be the first to admit that I made a mistake. Um and so if I'm causing doubt that um that the the pickup spot was in a different place than it actually was, um I wanna rectify that. So at this point in our conversation we started wondering aloud if there was any possibility whatsoever that Chris was remembering two different days. But also, Chris could still be correct in his memory. Johnny could have, for some reason, walked back home for something, and then come back and crossed in front of the Burgess driveway. So I did feel that I should float this idea past Chris Burge. So, not to jump ahead too much, but after I left Des Moines on this trip, I sent Chris an email in which I said, Hi, Chris. I have a question for you that I wanted to get your thoughts on, something that John Gosh Sr. brought up recently. Just last week, I was back in Des Moines collecting audio to do an update, and something Yellowbag told me was that when he met John Sr., who was in Des Moines the week before, he said that he had thought about it, and he did believe that the pickup spot that morning was at the corner of 42nd and Ashworth. He said so because we know from Mike Seskis and the bosen brothers that there was definitely a pickup spot there, and if there was one at Ashworth, there wouldn't have also been one at Marcourt. They wouldn't have been right next to each other. They were always spaced out. John thought you might be remembering the Monday through Saturday drop, which was different from Sunday's. Is there any chance that in your memory of seeing Johnny pass by the driveway and then seeing his wagon later that afternoon that you're remembering two different days? Or do you know for certain that Johnny passed by your driveway on that morning? It's still possible, even if the pickup spot was at Ashworth, because Johnny was known to occasionally run back home if he forgot something, etc. I was just hoping you could clarify that detail. Thank you. And in the eloquent, diplomatic way that only Chris Burge can, he responded, Sarah, I am pretty goddamn sure without a doubt that I saw Johnny on that Sunday morning in front of my house. I remember exactly how the day played out and my thoughts as it happened. The first was seeing Johnny's wagon when I returned home. I thought, wow, I just saw him. Where did he go? I went around my house to see if he was peeing on the side of the house or something, as kids were very mobile and ran and rode bikes through the other yards without thought. I really thought he went to play a game or something in the neighborhood that I was missing out on. The next was the police officer sitting in his car in front of my house all morning and telling Mr. Cooper, who still lives across the street on Marcourt, they think there was a kidnapping in the neighborhood. I had never felt a shock of fear like I had at that moment. The truck that dropped off our papers at 42nd and Woodland would come from the east, driving west on Woodland. They turn wide onto 42nd, pulling up to the southwest corner of 42nd and Woodland for less than five seconds to drop our papers and headed south on 42nd to Ashworth. They could have dropped off the papers at Marcourt and then at Ashworth just as easy. They slow down to about five miles an hour and throw the bundle from the back of a truck, then head to the next stop. Also Kevin said he and Mark never saw Johnny at the corner of Marcor and 42nd that morning. He only saw him on Marcor in front of my house. How did the Bozins travel south on 42nd and Ashworth and then turn around and travel back to Marcor on the only sidewalk available and then only see the wagon if Johnny picked up his papers at 42nd and Marcor? You make conclusions that have no basis in fact. Why would they have not been a few blocks apart, especially if the paper boy requested it? How do you know that the paper drops were always spaced out? Did the person who dropped off the papers at our corner tell you that? How or what does Mike Seskus say about this that changes anything? I put zero concern to what Yellowbag says. He can question my memories, but no one can question his. He inserts himself in a case where he has no reason and no real connection. Sure, stuff he said could have happened, but you have no proof, witnesses, or anything else. Just theory. And only theory. You said many times you would take the word of a witness rather than someone who did not know or see Johnny. But you take yellow bag over mine. Fuck off and leave me alone. You have misquoted me too many times and twisted my words. Said I said things that I didn't. Please stop fucking up the story. That's in capital letters. You are worse than Noreen. So always count on a level-headed response from Chris Birch. He seems pretty certain, I would say. So we moved on to other topics, and I did ask Yellow Bag at this point if he would consider sharing his real name, because I understand it gets a little tiresome to keep hearing the phrase Yellow Bag. He said not just yet, maybe one day in the future though, but I did want to know what he thought about Sam. But yeah, what was your impression of Sam Soda when you met him? Uh, he's pretty intense.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, he, he kind of, he, even though he's an elderly man now, he still kind of lives up to that stereotype a, of an he, old-fashioned a, private eye. He's
0: got a fiery personality, that's he's, for sure. He's uh, quite a character. <laughs> he, was, he was quite entertaining when Mark and I met him, though.
1: But, uh, you know, even though he's quite a character, I, I just got the impression that he's, he's really sincere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that he's a, he, he's probably done a lot of things wrong in his life but that overall he's a good guy Yeah,
0: I mean you know he's probably done things wrong but then again haven't we all right (laughs) like yeah yeah, I I was so surprised when I met him because my impression that I always had of him leading up to that day and then the impression of him that I had when Mark and I left his house was two different worlds (laughs) so vastly different Um, and I think that that's, you know, he's been given a bad rap by a lot of different sources. Uh, A lot of it came from the Des Moines Register, and I think that's something that further solidifies that it was probably people involved at the Des Moines Register, because he very clearly, and will tell you straight out, that he thinks it was somebody at the Des Moines Register.
1: Yeah, that's what Sam believes. Sam, when Sam started looking into register employees, that's when the hit piece came out against him. Yeah. And he he connects those two events together.
0: So as we kept talking that morning, we spoke a little more about John Rossi and his memory of that morning. And we decided that since we were right there in West Des Moines, why don't we take a ride over to John Rossi's house and see if he'd like to talk?
1: John Rossi just lives maybe three or four blocks away from the paper drop.
0: Okay. All right. So it's not as if he lives far away.
1: Right? No, no. Like, he, he drove there that morning, but it's not a huge distance.
0: Okay. Cause the other thing that concerned me about it was what Peggy was saying that, you know, they were in a hurry to leave that day.
1: So, so there's, there's 42nd Ashworth and John, okay. John lives around the corner.
0: Here. Oh, okay. This isn't far at all. Um, yeah, so we're at forty. Just kind finish of, yeah, yeah, and it's literally the next street down. Um, so yeah, it's kind of just a stone's throw away. Um, I think the only thing that concerned me about it was the fact that um, they were in a hurry to leave that day. So and he, you know, he came there not with the intention to like memorize something that happened or memorize what a boy looked like. He came there with the intention of helping his son collect his papers. So they could get out of there. Um so his that's what his primary focus was. Um so you're you know when you're sort of in that mindset, you're not really you're not fully paying attention to the details going on around you. Um that was my only concern with that. But he seems like you said to have a pretty clear memory of that day too. Sure. So, so we'll see. There were no other cars in the driveway at John Rossi's house. We went up to the stoop, we tried the doorbell twice, but after a few minutes, when no one answered, we decided it really seemed like there was no one home. So rather than keep waiting, we went and drove around some more.
1: It could be half a mile or something from here to the paper
0: drop. Yeah, so I just want everyone listening to get a sense of where we are right now. we just tried John Rossi's house. We don't think he's home. Um what street is this?
1: 40th and Aspen.
0: Okay, so this is 40th and Aspen Drive, the corner that we're at and we're turning onto the corner right now and um Ashworth is right up ahead of us. Um runs uh, it intersects with uh 40th. And literally being that this is 40th and Ashworth. 42nd Ashworth is just over on our left, right there. Um, so it's not far away at all. Um, so it's not like he had a huge distance to drive that morning. Like I said earlier, just kind of a stone's throw away. Like, oh, oh that's not it, but it's up there. It's, it's not the next street down, it's the one after it. Um, but yeah, it's pretty close.
1: So, John told me that that morning, the car was parked on the corner, but it was parked at a 45-degree angle. It really wasn't on one street or the other.
0: So, where was it? It was here, and it was... Right
1: here at 42nd Nashworth. Okay. And uh, John said that he thought maybe Johnny had just gotten out of the car. The passenger door was open. Huh. Uh johnny kind of popped up like either he had leaned over or sat down in the car
0: okay and did john rossi remember if johnny had a wagon or his dog with him
1: i don't know that i asked john that john rossi okay
0: because that's a pretty important detail too um if johnny had because he definitely had his wagon and um by all accounts had his dog with him that morning too um and what did you say what did johnny's dad say about the dog too
1: i I asked johnny's dad uh, where the dog was that morning and uh, john senior said that he found the dog in johnny's bed but the dog was cowering in the bed like it was afraid or like something bad had happened but john said that he thinks the dog might have been able to get back in the house by itself
0: yeah, because he said maybe the, the garage, Johnny left the garage door open, you said?
1: Yes, and he said that if the garage door was open even a little bit, the dog could get in.
0: Yeah, because she was tiny. She was like a mini dachshund.
1: Um. So it's possible the dog walked home by itself mm-hmm. after Johnny was kidnapped.
0: Yeah, and that seems to be the common belief, too. Um, I think. Uh, a lot of people didn't see the dog that morning i know chris burge is one of them um but it's entirely possible that she was probably riding in the in the wagon and she's probably just hanging out in there
1: Uh, john said too that johnny would put the dog in his paper bag when it was empty
0: yeah i remember that he told he told me that too
1: you know a dog that size might not have been seen
0: yeah Yeah, and just to let everyone know now, as we've been talking, um, we just drove up uh, onto Marcourt Lane and into the cul-de-sac at 45th. We just saw Johnny's house just now. So, what do you mean when you say a 45-degree angle? It was like.
1: It was parked like half of the car was. This way, and half of the car was...
0: Like it was diagonally? It, like, yeah,
1: it was parked diagonal, which John said he thought that was strange. You know, why didn't the guy park over here? Why didn't the guy park face on the other direction? Yeah. It was uh, parked at an angle.
0: Okay. And was it parked sort of like it was facing the wrong way of traffic? No, like?
1: it, it was just parked at a 45-degree angle okay. right on the corner. Okay. Uh, not, um, you know, not facing... Uh, west or north, but just kind of facing northwest. Okay. And John said that uh, the guy looked really, really agitated, really angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he, Johnny said something like, Can you help give this man directions? Okay. Uh, John Rossi gave the man directions to 22nd Street or 86th. And then John said the man immediately took off, did a U-turn headed east on Ashworth. And John said he remembered thinking how rude it was that he had just given the man directions. Uh And then he took off without even saying thank you.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a little bizarre. And um, didn't he also say that this guy didn't look like an older guy, he looked young?
1: Uh, John thought maybe a guy in his 30s.
0: Okay. So probably not matching the quote unquote Emilio sketch that we've seen all over the internet. Uh, um,
1: well, John drew that sketch or, or had that sketch drawn. Okay. So, uh, um, you know, John still stands behind that sketch.
0: Okay. And as yellow bag drove me back to my friend's car, which I had been borrowing again, our conversation circled back around again to the location of that paper drop. I might send Chris Burge an email later. Can only imagine his response, his pleasant response.
1: <laughs> you know, it may have been possible that Johnny went back home for some reason. I mean, yeah. John John said that before. That... Yeah,
0: he told, John told me that too. That John, Johnny had done that a couple of times. Um, either he forgot something, or just came to get like some food or something just any old reason. So Yellowbad dropped me back off at our meeting spot and we said our goodbyes. But my day wasn't over yet. Later that afternoon, I met up with Ron Sampson and Mark Hinshaw over at Mark's Law Office. Getting butterflies. I don't know why I'm nervous all of a sudden. I know these guys. Spent extensive time with them last time I was here. And yet still got kind of the butterflies in my stomach right now. Ugh. Uh, Do you know
2: where that's at?
0: No. It's
2: literally the first door
0: to the left there. Okay. I'm really sorry. All right, that
2: was fine. Oh, the escape
0: patch. <laughs> Hi. Welcome. Thanks.
2: Good to see you. Yeah,
0: good to see you.
2: Come on in here. Okay. So.
3: Hey, kid, how are you? Hi, I'm good.
0: Um, we tried to go over to John Rossi's house, uh, but I think maybe he wasn't home. We tried the doorbell a couple of
3: times. Oh, really? But this yeah. story with, about John Rossi is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's fascinating. Uh, did you ever know that John Rossi was considered a suspect? For a I did
0: not know that, but it kind of made sense when he told me that today because yeah. I was like, oh, okay, well, he was the last adult to see him I guess so yeah Yeah. and um, uh, he was also telling me this morning that when John gosh was here last week that he mentioned that um, he thinks the drop-off spot was up at Ashworth now Um, and I'm like okay uh, And like my concern was only that if John Rossi didn't know Johnny that maybe he didn't um didn't recognize him yeah I I, that's what I thought for that's what I kind of thought for a while because for a long time they always said that John Rossi was up at that corner but they never like any report or any documentary you ever see they all have failed to mention that he didn't live at that house he had driven to that house so uh, my assumption was always that he lived at that house um, but then I was emailing a few months back with his daughter Peggy and she was saying like no we never lived there he drove there that day and we were actually in a hurry that day to get out of town right. and and I, when she told me that I was like oh well he was he didn't know Johnny he wasn't from that area I mean he didn't live far away but he didn't live like right there right. and he he was doing <coughs> other things, like he it was focusing on yeah, other have been things a
2: that day. Boy, there, but on the same hand, if it was a different boy there, you think that that different boy would have been interviewed by the police or identified right. by somebody or came forward and said, "Hey, I was in this guy's car."
0: Yeah, or and
2: John Gosh uh, Senior, you know, his belief was that um, that his papers were delivered at Ashworth. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he was saying that um, if it was at Ashworth, it couldn't have been at Marcourt because they wouldn't have been right next to each other no, like that. They wouldn't have. Been yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking like maybe it was Ashworth this whole time, and I mean if there was, especially if there was a drop off spot that morning, and it we know that there was a drop off spot at Ashworth, then there couldn't have been mm-hmm. one at Marcourt. So. Right. I wanna point out again that I've thought for a while and I still think now that the car that was seen at the corner of Forty Second and Ashworth and the car seen on Marcourt that took Johnny are not the same car. I find it hard to believe that the two were connected.
2: So in that scenario that guy would have peeled out there and he would have just circled and gone back in the neighborhood and found Johnny or Well I I a, still you
0: know. think I still think that it was a totally different car that w- was up at Ashworth than what the car that was on Marcourt Lane. Yeah. Because it's got two different descriptions. John Rossi remembers the car at Ashworth as being a blue, I think he said Mercury, mm-hmm. and PJ Smith, who saw the car on Marcourt, remembers seeing a two toned Ford Fairmont. So it's like two completely different colors and two completely different make and models.
3: In today's world, every little league coach, every scout leader, every buddy is under a microscope. Mm-hmm. Yet these people from 35 years ago were not were not interested in looking at what might have happened.
0: I think there was a different consciousness back then. I oh, think absolutely. The, the, and, I, and I was thinking about this earlier today. It, really, I think it was that decade. It was the 1980s where there was a shift in consciousness of children and mm-hmm. versus adult predators right right I right. think prior to that that consciousness didn't even exist
2: I mean the only place you'd see it was local yeah you'd see it yeah. in the, the newspaper well, yeah can you imagine if
3: those stories came out today where it said that Mel House had a list of 2,000 kids or <laughs> whatever and <laughs> and you worked for the register and, and you worked for I mean if that was in the news yeah, today... Yeah,
0: circulation manager didn't just I mean, work there. Gosh,
3: that is, that's unbelievable. I mean, that's an earthquake.
0: Well, and also had already been arrested and been to jail for, yeah, for yeah. fooling around with
3: boys. Yeah, And, and it's a six-inch story in the register. We're all just reading it and thinking, oh, isn't that something? What's on the next page? I'm going to read it. I mean, it just, it did not, it did not register with people at that time, how pervasive this is and how perverted it is.
0: Well, there's also an, an obvious angle too. It's just, he was an employee of the register, so they don't want to put it out there that they hired this guy. Yeah. We're talking this morning about Sam and how uh, the first hit piece didn't come out on him until he started looking into people at the right. register. Right,
3: I can't, yeah, and, and the more I read those, and I go through this notebook all the time just thinking I'll run into something that will light our way. I just can't believe they ran those stories. They didn't have to run those stories. You know, who was gonna judge them? I know that they were never on the regular news, on on TV news or radio news, and they were the only game in town. We were the weekly newspapers and we didn't have, we really didn't have an interest or the manpower to go down to the courthouse and find these things out. I just, I can't believe that they actually put those in the paper about their employees doing those things. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. The one thing I have to do is um, I
2: did check with the courthouse. They indicated that all of Millhouse's criminal records will be on microfiche. So okay. we should be able to go down there and look at all the criminal records which would be absolutely fascinating.
0: This morning we were talking about like maybe getting some of the trial transcripts to, right. to see what he said in any of those any of those transcripts yeah it was a pretty brief meeting that i had with ron and mark that afternoon but i did meet with them one more time at greater length during this trip the focus was wilbur millhouse and how do we find out more about the man it's all about finding old co-workers and people who knew him back at the time
2: you know the other thing i did um i looked up all the names of all the uh people that uh, were advertised with Millhouse for routes saying okay we have this route available call either Irmaflam or, yeah. or Millhouse right mm-hmm. I started looking up those names and like the two people I've found so far they're both dead so, but if we can find some people that actually were working or staffing the same routes with Millhouse that would be a great place to start too because they should have real good knowledge um, of his actions. But there was a a Tim Moylan and an Irma Flam, and they were both people that were listed as as having the same routes as him. But we need to go back to newspapers.com, see if any other people are listed with him, find the people, cross-check them, See what yeah. comes from it. If you think about it and you look at any crime,
3: Millhouse had the, the motive. Yeah. He had the means. He had the opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he had the longest record of anything and, and the worst answers. You know, the fact that he had 2,000 kids listed in his house and he said, well, that's my resources for carrier boys. What yeah. does Des Moines have? 300 carriers. And right. you, had to have, you, know, you have 2,000 names.
2: Yeah. And physical I mean, identifying
3: information. Yeah. Well, he's sick. I mean, he was sick. He was a straight ass, bad pedophile. But think about it. I mean, how many of these serial killers and
2: stuff like that live in their parents' yeah. uh, homes yep. or yep. have very yep. dysfunctional
3: lives? They yep.
0: have like bizarre relationships with their parents. Yeah.
3: Right. Yeah. Well, I'm excited and, for and, that. Yeah, and maybe when we put that out there, that we would like to have anybody's, I mean, can a person say that? Okay, if you were a paperboy in the nineteen seventies and eighties. You may or may not have had run-ins with the Des Moines Register, uh, and even dropped the name of Wilbur Millhouse. I mean, can you do that? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. cause he's, Absolutely. In a, he's in Absolutely. He's in enough. Dead. He, yeah, he's and he's in enough news stories. Yeah, well, it's I think out you, there. I it's think what you do is I think you yeah. just have a little <coughs> spot put together,
2: a thirty-second or a minute-long spot. And then I think you push on social media and you play it on some local news stations. But you know, even if it wasn't Wilbur Milhouse, he somehow, even if it wasn't him directly, the chances are, you know, more likely than not that he somehow played a role in this or knew some of the characters that were doing these kinds of things. And so if you focus all the efforts on him and getting people like in the fray, yeah, uh, yeah. then Who knows what else is going to pop up at that point.
0: If you tuned into my episodes at the end of last season, when I was last in Des Moines, you were able to hear us talk about a few other people we learned about who were connected to the register at the time, who we thought may have played a role in Johnny's abduction, but we were very careful not to say their names. Well, understand that a lot of things have been done behind the scenes. We checked out these other leads, and as far as we can tell, there's nothing that can connect any of them back to Johnny, or any wrongdoing for that matter, sort of in the same manner that we felt we cleared Sam Soda's name when we met him in person. It always came back to Millhouse, and who knew Millhouse, and who out there still living today had direct contact with him that they can recall.
2: I'm sure you're going to be able to rebuild that whole sort of community, yeah. especially if you have an online forum to do it. And that's why I think when you do the the ad and the Facebook advertisement, you want it so people can click on that ad and go straight to the the forum, and then they can post on the wall of that forum, or they can send a private message in the forum.
3: So who's in charge of this thing? How how is it? How is it? instituted who's responsible for moderating the page yeah any of us can not me because i don't
0: do it i mean anybody can do it
2: i think we would just want to have the blessing of john so john knows who's doing it so i'm more than comfortable doing it because all my staff are more than capable of um creating a facebook page and doing it okay Okay. um Good. good good you know so what we need is a script. So I'll, I'll work on that end of yeah. developing the page.
0: So that is now the goal. Creating an online forum, which Mark Hinshaw will moderate, for anyone out there who knew or remembers anything about Wilbur Millhouse. And they can contact anonymously if they so choose. Just to share their experiences and if any of their experiences with Millhouse are similar to Yellowbag's, and I want to be clear, the goal here is not to necessarily make assertions. It's only to find out any memories that other former newspaper carriers have of Millhouse and what kinds of things he may have blurted out in front of them. We don't know if anything will come out of it. It's just that this is a person worth looking into who was never looked at before. And before I finished up with Ron and Mark that day, there was one more matter that I wanted to follow up on someone who I've talked about already in this update and someone who is still talked about often on the Faded Out Facebook page and in the followers of Faded Out Group. I also wanted to update a little bit about Sam because I know I still have some listeners who are kind of on the fence about how they feel about Sam. Um, and...
2: That's ridiculous. Yeah. Sam's um, the... Sam's his peers they come. Yeah,
3: he's the... He's strictly a victim of Marines' uh, paranoia.
0: Okay. Um. And you saw his purple heart, right? You, you, he definitely does have
3: a purple heart. And a cool collage. I can't believe I didn't take a picture of his collage of his when he was in active duty. Yeah. And he
2: wasn't trying to show it off to you. No. You, you just saw I, it when you are walking I by. I had to
3: walk to go see it. He, didn't, huh? he wouldn't let me out of the kitchen. It, you know, let me just tell you this, if he was any way, shape, or form what Noreen thinks, he'd have nothing to do with us. Not only would he, you know, he would be distancing himself rather than saying he'd help us. Well, and his wife,
2: you know, his wife was so nice, yeah. and she uh, encouraged him to not cooperate or not get involved with this because she didn't want his, she knew he was a good man and didn't want his name uh, run through the mud again. Um, there's just nothing about either of them. You
0: know. I, yeah, I was so, I felt so guilty after we left that house that day because for several episodes up until that point, I had believed everything I read about him. And I, you know, spoke about it on the podcast. I was like, oh my God, this arrogant guy. And then I, then we meet him. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that I, uh, uh." (laughs) that's when, like, you sent me an email saying that Sam said he would start listening to the podcast. I was like,
3: (gasps) (laughs) no. No, Sam's such a nice guy. a lot worse than that. I mean, yeah. You look at the way the register took off after him. He's a very philosophical guy for being as attacked as he was.
0: Well, and I was realizing too, I was thinking about this yesterday, uh, for his name to be dragged through the mud for so long um, and to still live in Des Moines and just like live his best life and thrive, it's like that takes some brass right there oh, just, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. just to like, oh, no, I'm not moving. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to well, stay right here. Well, I think it's
2: because he knows... The people that really know him...
3: He's king of are the here. South Side. They yeah. all know him,
2: yeah. and they all know he's a good guy and has nothing to hide, and he's a, a decorated war veteran. Mm-hmm. But you really can't judge someone until you meet them and have a conversation face-to-face. That's, right. face. right. that's right. Um, it's pretty easy to demonize someone from behind the,
3: and by, the keyboard. And, I, and with somebody else's judgment. Yeah.
0: You know, and that's... You know. And I think that that's... Part of what did it too is that, um, you know, as the general public, we expect um, newspaper writers, newspaper reporters, to be objective and to only give real information. And there's and, and it's just not something that we guard ourselves on when you're right. when you're reading journalism.
2: Yeah, and you know, not only do I think Sam's completely innocent. Um, I think he probably has the best insight into the case. Yeah. yeah. That it was a crime of opportunity. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm. yeah,
2: yeah. And the fact, I, I think he, he lends more credence to the fact that this wasn't some big syndicate. conspiracy theory, and this the wasn't some big syndicate, and, and deal. Yeah. Johnny wasn't you know shuttled off to the Bush administration at the White House. Yeah. That this was yeah. a localized crime by a local pedophile that had an
3: opportunity and took it. Yeah. yeah. Which is the case in most rapes, molestations, yeah, most
0: crimes. It's, it's somebody right. it's somebody the victim
3: knew. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And who would have the opportunity? Yeah. Millhouse, right. Mm-hmm. And has the history, long yep. before Johnny came along, he had a history of this shit.
0: Or any of these yeah. supposed he, yeah, or, if you think about Milhouse,
3: time. Milhouse
2: committed and was found guilty on a lot of crimes of opportunity. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah.
0: I want to repeat something that Ron and Mark said in that last clip that I think we all need to remember. And I do include myself in this because I've slipped up with this enough times myself. You really can't judge someone until you meet them and have a conversation face to face. It's pretty easy to demonize someone from behind the keyboard and with somebody else's judgment. We need to remember, certainly when looking at old unsolved crimes with a hundred different theories, that when we look at the players in each story, we're looking at them through a filter, not through firsthand knowledge. As much as you may think you know by doing deep dive web searches or reading old articles or watching old TV reports, you are taking in that knowledge through a filter, whether that filter is your own assumptions or by somebody else's judgment it still doesn't take the place of interacting with someone in person. So my advice would be, and I need to follow my own advice too, is just that when you're taking in all this information, do it with a grain of salt. Rather than just taking the things you read at face value or believing them because they seem more interesting and they seem like the more exciting scenario, try to just remember that There are many sides to all stories, and there's many layers to all stories, layers which I've talked about before. After I flew back home, I sent an email to everybody, to Ron, Mark, Yellowbag, and John Gosh, and I said, I have to just be the storyteller here. I cannot be the leader of anything that happens next. I can only be the one who updates listeners on what you guys are doing on your end. And whatever does happen next relies on what we can find of people out there who knew Millhouse and interacted with Wilbur Millhouse. That's why when this Facebook group that we just talked about is created, it will be moderated by Mark Hinshaw like he said, and we will invite everyone in the area or outside the area depending on wherever they are now to contact that group and talk about your experience with Millhouse. And if you remember any interactions with him, any inappropriate behavior, or just anything bizarre that you might have heard him say, because if he said things in front of Yellowbag and Yellowbag's mother, chances are very good he said it in front of other people too. So that is where I leave you with the season one update. I hope I'll have another season one update for you soon, but only time will tell with that. In the meantime, please follow Faded Out on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. There's also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. You can also find us on Instagram as Faded Out Podcast. And if you'd like to reach out, you can email us at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Currently, we are in season two, where we're following a local case in Connecticut, the 1988 disappearance of a little girl named Doreen Vincent. Thank you for joining me for the season one update. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.